0: Welcome to Episode 6 of the Applied Political Philosophy Podcast, an exploration of political ideas, political reality, and political possibilities. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Miller. In this episode, we will explore issues related to direct democracy. I can conceive of a national destiny which meets the responsibilities of state and measures up to the possibilities of tomorrow. The will continue to shape the foundations of our nation until
1: the Justice Citizens of America expect more. They deserve and they want more.
0: Applied political philosophy. We begin this episode by looking at the origins of direct democracy in America. In 1902, Oregon voters overwhelmingly approved a state constitutional amendment that established the power of initiative and referendum, creating what would be known nationally as the Oregon system. This set of political reforms, empowering voters to directly propose new laws and constitutional amendments and block unpopular legislation, what today we call direct democracy, owe their passage to the untiring political efforts of an obscure Oregonian named William Uren. Blacksmithing was my trade, and it has always given color to my view of things. I wanted to fix the evils in the conditions of life. I couldn't. There were no tools. We had tools to do almost anything within the blacksmith's shop, wonderful tools. So in other trades, arts, and professions, in everything but government. In government, the common trade of all men and the basis of social life. Men worked still with old tools, with old laws, with institutions and charters which hindered progress more than they helped it. Men suffered from this. There were enough lawyers. Many of our ablest men were lawyers. Why didn't some of them invent legislative implements to help people govern themselves? Why had we no toolmakers for democracy? These are the words of William U. Wren, a progressive era reformer credited with winning passage of the first forms of direct democracy in the United States. U. Wren's personal history as a reformer began not with political reform, but tax reform. His earliest priority was passing what was known as the single tax, a tax reform advocated in Henry George's controversial book, Progress and Poverty, published in 1879. The single tax was aimed at taxing the unearned profits of industrialists, robber barons, bankers, and land speculators. Upon encountering this book, Yu Ren became an instant zealot. I went just as crazy over the single tax idea as anyone else did. I knew I wanted single tax, and that was about all I did know. Of course, the political system at the time was controlled by the very people targeted by the single tax, and Yu Ren soon realized that he needed different tools to win passage of his tax reform. After reading James W. Sullivan's 1892 work, Direct Legislation by the Citizenship through the Initiative and Referendum, a clunky title that basically said it all, Uren became a convert to the cause of direct democracy. In 1896, Uren won a seat in the Oregon House as a populist, the only elective office he ever held. From this position, he engineered the so-called Hold Up Legislature by organizing populist representatives and their supporters to boycott the opening of the House session of 1897. Their absence prevented the House from meeting a quorum, meaning the House was unable to be called into session. And with a bicameral state legislature, no legislative business was able to be done for the entire two-year session. UREN had exploited a split within the Republican Party over the re-election of Republican U.S. Senator John Mitchell. Striking a deal with anti-Mitchell faction of Republicans, UREN's populists and the pro-reform Republicans joined together to deny the House quorum. UN ran for a state Senate seat next, and although he lost that race, he was able to continue his legislative maneuvering as an important populist leader. Threatening more gridlock, he won enough support within the Oregon legislature to pass an initiative and referendum amendment to the state constitution. Under Oregon's constitution at the time, any constitutional amendment had first to be passed in two successive legislative sessions, and then approved by a majority vote in a ballot measure. In 1901, the I&R amendment passed the legislature again, with only a single dissenting vote. And in 1902, voters ratified it by an 11-to-1 margin. Uren's victory made Oregon the first state to adopt the initiative and referendum process. But Uren and Oregon progressives weren't done forging new tools for the people's use. The Citizen Initiative itself was the avenue through which a series of first-in-the-nation political reforms were proposed and approved. A 1906 ballot measure, which won by a margin of nearly 30,000 votes out of 65,000 cast, extended the initiative power to state constitutional amendments, and a successful 1908 ballot measure, approved by a margin of 3 to 1, made Oregon the first state to give voters the power to recall elected officials. Also in 1908, Oregon voters approved an initiative to choose U.S. Senators through direct popular election, making Oregon the first state to do so, four years before ratification of the 17th Amendment copied that reform at the national level. A third 1908 initiative to reform election laws passed by an overwhelming margin. The Corrupt Practices Act was the nation's first ever campaign finance law. Two years later, Oregonians narrowly passed an initiative to establish the first presidential primary election system in the nation. While the margin of victory was a mere 1,700 out of 85,000 votes cast, two dozen states had copied this innovation within six years. The drive towards political reform began to lose steam in the 19-teens. In 1912, Oregon voters narrowly passed an initiative to grant women the right to vote, making it the seventh state to do so, but rejected another one of UREN's pet initiatives to create a unicameral legislature for Oregon. The margin of defeat was two to one. With the progressive era coming to a close, ballot initiatives in the following decades would be used for decidedly anti-reform causes. In 1922, for example, a Ku Klux Klan-backed initiative to bar students from attending private schools, aimed at closing down the Catholic school system in Oregon, passed by 12,000 votes. That same year, Uren's original Holy Grail, the single tax, was defeated by a margin of 132,000 to 39,000. In 1924, the Voters Literacy Amendment, a legislatively-referred constitutional amendment requiring a literacy test for voting, was passed by well over 100,000 votes. Since its inception, Oregon voters have passed 127 of 367 initiatives, 23 of 65 referenda, and 257 of 434 legislatively referred ballot measures. With nearly a thousand attempted acts of direct democracy at the state level alone, UREN's Oregon system has undoubtedly placed a good deal of political power in the hands of the voters. Whether it has done so for good or for bad is a subject for further discussion. The initiative and referendum have played an important role in the politics of the two dozen states that adopted direct democracy into their system. Some political reform advocates want to widen this avenue of lawmaking and constitution amending, bringing it to more states, making it easier where it already exists, and creating direct democracy at the national level. This next segment, an excerpt from a lecture I delivered in May 2020, explores a few of the issues related to expanding direct democracy. Direct democracy, this avenue of reform, is available already. It is available at least in a limited fashion. Uh, It's available largely across the country for constitutional amendments. State constitutions are open to amendment by direct democracy. Um, In some cases, it's part of the two-tiered approach to filtering constitutional amendments, where the legislature has to pass something and then that has to be approved by a referendum uh, of the people. Most states actually have some kind of referendum, final vote by the people. Some states actually have an initiative version. One of the things about direct democracy is we have initiative and referendum. Direct democracy is an avenue of reform, and it's an avenue of reform in both political reform and regular policy reform. The, the question before us in this class about political reform is, direct democracy is an avenue of political reform, but also it's an avenue of policy reform. Should that avenue that exists already, should that avenue be widened? Should there be more opportunities for people, the American people, or the people of various states, to use the avenue of direct democracy to achieve policy reform. For the most part, what we would be looking at to broaden this avenue, to create more opportunities for the people to determine policy outcomes directly, either through the initiative or the referendum, that's a political reform. A political reformer who wants to broaden this avenue is going to actually have to use a different avenue of, political reform to broaden this avenue of policy reform. The question about direct democracy is should we try to make this avenue of policy making more widely and more easily available to the American people in various versions at the local, state, and the federal level. The difference between an initiative is that this comes from the people and the referendum is to the people. Referred From the legislature. We can't treat both of these things the same. We can't just lump initiatives and referendums into the same category because when we're analyzing the process, they have very different processes. For example, the referendum comes from the legislature, and the question that we have then is well, what does it take to refer a vote to the people? Most states, it just takes a simple majority in both houses of the legislature to send it to the people. Part of what you might say is, well, okay, could we actually either raise or lower the threshold for referring a bill to the people? Might you be able to actually, with only 40% of the legislature, get a referendum there? And why would that make any sense? So far, we don't have anything like a sub-majority, right? We have super-majorities. To get a constitutional amendment in the U.S. Constitution, It takes two layers of supermajority, a two-thirds vote in both houses of Congress, and then three-quarters of the states. So we have supermajorities all over the place. Why would a submajority make sense? Well, a submajority could make sense because what you want to do is you want to create an avenue for minority parties to be able to put something before the people. So in your state, there's a Democratic majority in the legislature and there's a Republican minority, and yet a lot of people in the state support Republican policies. Why shouldn't the people get to speak on those policies just because the Republican party is not in the majority? And I would say the traditional answer is the reason why you don't is because what that means is the Republican party has to organize to win the majority to get its policy priorities onto the agenda. That's a correct answer, given the way our system is, but we can always ask, well, why? Why should a party that wants to put something on the policy agenda, why should it have to have only one method of getting control of that agenda? Taking control of the majority of seats in the legislature, which is actually a very difficult thing to do in the sense that if you have, as we do in Oregon, we have 60 members of the House of Representatives. To get a majority, to be able to elect the Speaker of the House and to be able to control the policy agenda, in other words, to be able to get things out of committees and onto the floor vote and voted ahead, you have to have 31 seats. Let's say that you have 25 seats. Well, you only need a net pickup of six, which is not a huge percentage, but you have to gain those six seats, not statewide, not just by getting more voters to support your party's candidates as you would in a proportional system, but by winning specific geographic areas. That particular kind of political strategy is more difficult than just getting a majority of votes. It's also possible, both specifically in gerrymandered states and even just for political demographic distribution reasons, it's also possible for the majority of people in a state to vote for candidates from one party and yet have the other party control a majority of seats in the legislature. And so that party has already garnered the attention of a large chunk of the electorate, a majority, and yet doesn't have the seats in the legislature to move their Policy agenda forward. Now, that actually is obviously a chronic problem in states where there's gerrymandering. And there's Wisconsin is is the most clear case of this, where the Democratic Party won something like 60% of the seats and the, uh, excuse me, the votes in state legislative elections, and the Republican Party controls uh, something like 60% of the seats in the state legislature. So the Democratic Party has won a lot of votes and convinced a lot of voters that its agenda is the one that should be moving forward. Yet because the seat-by-seat victories went the other way, the Democratic Party basically has to play defense. They can't play offense on their agenda. So, why a submajority? It would be an interesting way to say, okay, our representative system isn't, one, the only avenue through which policy should get made. Obviously, that's what direct democracy is about. But also, it should have a counterbalance that there are problems with our representative system where we don't just want another opportunity for policy to get made, in a way, we wanna check on the policy. So I don't know really anybody who's proposing a sub-majority. I think it would be super un- uh, unpopular, and I also think it would, it would uh, raise a lot of dangers, but just in theoretical possibility, we could have a referendum threshold that says, if you have 40% of the legislators in both houses vote for a referendum, it goes to the people. And then maybe you could counterbalance that with a supermajority on the second pass, that the referendum has to pass with 55% of the votes, And you could even put some kind of threshold on voter turnout, you could say that voter turnout could be no less than 75% of what it was in the previous gubernatorial election, because that way, if the referendum gets scheduled in some special election slot, like a spring (laughs) primary, like we have coming up here in Oregon, and voter turnout is low, we don't end up with just uh, something getting passed with minority support in the legislature, and then not very many people voting. So there's all kinds of, you can use thresholds with both super and sub-majorities to make sure that things check each other out. But one of the reasons why a sub-majority might even make sense is because direct democracy is not just a opportunity for the people to take control of the policy-making process in addition to the representative system, the legislature. It may be that part of the thing is, is that it's, it is a check on the legislature. And proponents of, especially the initiative, but both forms of direct democracy, one of the things that many proponents talk about is that it essentially would be widening this avenue of normal policy-making uh, process to include, its, you know, initiatives at the national level, referendum to the national level, and to, to uh, get it in more states than have it, uh, and in the states that have it, to lower the thresholds for actually getting something before the ballot, is that the representative system would have to take account of this particular new democratic process and adjust in Relation to its existence, right? So if the people can make laws more easily, then the elected lawmakers would have an incentive to behave differently than they do. Initiative is a different thing because the initiative is where the elected representatives have no control over the policymaking process at all. The people initiate and then vote on policies directly themselves. So this circumvents... The legislature, and so you can see that you could support one and not the other. We could say, all right, you know, we're gonna we're going to introduce a submajority referendum process, and we're gonna create a, two different filters: a submajority legislative referendum. So, if forty percent of the members of a state legislature vote in favor of a referendum, it goes on the next general election ballot. We add a supermajority, and we say it has to pass with fifty-five percent support of the people and it also uh, has to, the voter turnout has to be a certain threshold above what the previous gubernatorial election turnout was, and set it at say 75 or 80%, so that there could be some slippage you know, acknowledging that from election to election, voter turnout can vary, but that if you set it high enough, at least it means that a lot of people voted on this thing. And then you can say, well, we don't want to have an initiative at all. What we want, the problem that we have with our state is that there is uh, essentially an incapacitated minority. And the only way that the incapacitated minority can get its policies looked at or voted on is by winning a bunch of district seats and getting into the majority. Do we want to or not want to empower the minority to have an easier chance not passing laws, right? We're not talking about 40% threshold for passing a law. That really, that is very easy to say, well, that is that is actually undemocratic to allow a law to go into effect when most of the legislatures actually, legislators voted against it. But why not invent that? And then say, but we don't want an initiative. We What we want to do is we want to empower the elected minority so that when they can't quite pull off winning enough seats to have a majority, they're not dead in the water just waiting around, uh, killing time until they get into the majority. So that would actually be saying, well, the biggest problem is that we want to empower the minority. Different versions of a, democr- or a direct democratic process would solve different problems and create new different problems. One of the problems that would be solved by this you know, I would say fairly innovative and really you know, very unlikely type of direct democracy, a sub-majority referral vote, that would solve the problem of lack of minority power. Direct democracy as an avenue for policymaking is a response to perceived insufficiencies or problems with the legislative system. The initiative itself also addresses the lack of minority power. If you're in the minority and you want a policy that you know the majority party is never gonna even look at, much less vote on and definitely not pass, then you can go straight to the people and say, okay, you know, the, uh, a lot of people in this state are in favor of legalizing marijuana. A lot of the people in this state are in favor of raising the corporate tax rate. A lot of people in this state are in favor of creating a single-payer healthcare system within the state. But the majority party has zero interest in any of these policies and in fact is totally opposed to all of these policies and so we're never going to get them through our legislative system. What's another problem with the legislature that makes direct democracy compelling? One is that we have lack of responsiveness. The people are often thwarted in their desire for their elected officials to do the things that they sent them there to do. Congress in the last decade or so has had abysmal approval ratings—you know, in the teens. But even among, in the best of times, even in the least divisive times, even in the times when approval for the government is at high levels, Congress itself routinely has less than fifty percent of approval rating. That, at the same time that members of Congress have an eighty-five to ninety percent incumbent reelection rate, which means that people get reelected very at a high percentage. But Congress has a low approval rate, and it's largely because of the responsiveness problem, is that people are like, what are you doing? Do, you do what I want you to do. Well, why do they keep re-electing the same people? Why is the incumbent re-election rate so high when, disapp- when approval for the institution as a whole is so low? Well, that's one of the interesting things about the district-based system is that people can look at Congress or their state legislature and say, you're not doing anything. Get something done. Yet they look at their specific elected representative and they say, "I'm happy with you, or you're pushing for the things I want. I don't blame you for the lack of of responsiveness, or I've actually you're actually provided constituent services to me and people that are like me. So yeah, you're a good person to have there. It's just that collectively you're bad." So so the difference between a collective evaluation of Congress, which is routinely low, and state legislatures is often very low, and the individual evaluation of your particular member, this is actually one of the things that makes it tricky to turn over the majority from one party to another. You have to create a kind of a high level of dissatisfaction with individual people who are elected to be able to win back a majority. The lack of responsiveness is standard and typical, and it creates a lot of frustration and disapproval on the part of the American people. The idea of giving the people the ability to initiate policies means that when they're frustrated with the slow pace of problem solving in the legislature, they can take matters into their own hand. They can initiate what their elected officials are failing to initiate, should there be a national referendum or initiative. What problem gets created when we have direct democracy in this way? We have no national elections in this country at all. The American people do not get to vote for or against anything. We get to vote for our representatives in the federal government. Our members of the House get voted on in the state. While it's a federal election, it's a state-held election. It's organized, administered, and regulated by the state government. Our senators are the same thing. Obviously, our governors are. Our president is elected by the Electoral College, which is 51 separate state elections. 50 states in the District of Columbia all have their own elections. We have no national elections. We have a system of national government, Congress. We have a representative system that is national, and Congress represents the entire country, passes laws that apply to the entire country, but we never get to weigh in on one, the entirety of the makeup of Congress, or even on the president, we vote for the members of the Electoral College. If you were going to create either an initiative or a referendum, or both, you would have to create some kind of national voting method. How do you administer that? Well, currently, there's no national uh, electoral system, so we would we would have to create a national department of elections to hold these national elections or we would have to use the same mechanism that we currently have which is state departments of elections and state secretaries of state holding elections, creating the ballots, putting them on there but then there would have to be some kind of national legislation that would govern the wording and it would have to be the same wording on every ballot. There would be a whole new regulatory and procedural regime that would have to be created In order to do this and then there would be the problem of counting if you're going to aggregate all the votes from all 50 states into one big pile what happens when it's 50.1 percent yes and 49.9 percent no well there's almost certainly going to be calls for a recount and there could even be legislation that triggers an automatic recount most states have legislation that triggers a recount automatically at a certain percentage uh, gap. So if, if the difference between the winner and the loser is less than half of a percentage point, that automatically triggers in a lot of states a recount of those ballots. What if it was 50.1% to 49. Does every state have to recount? Or do only states that were close have to recount? How is the recount done and who pays for it and how was the pacing and what's the time frame? It's potentially, it doesn't mean that it's wrong to do it doesn't mean because this is this is a pragmatic problem not a theoretical problem but it's not a small one and it's not as though oh it's just a pragmatic problem we'll iron it out it's like well yeah will you what what happens when the recount then shows that it's actually that what was previously 49.9 percent if we recount in all the states it becomes 50.4 percent to 49.6 percent okay well do we recount again and do we only recount in states that flip their totals or what like how does that happen? The likelihood that close elections are gonna happen, if not all the time, at least frequently enough, that this will be a concern. For a ballot initiative, it's almost certain that a lot of these are gonna be close, and it's gonna necessitate either doing a recount or accepting that, well, okay, we, the yes won, but we didn't recount because we would have to recount 160 million ballots, and that's just a ridiculous procedure to go through. The Applied Political Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by the students and professor in PS 419, Political Reform, a political science class at Portland State University in Portland, Oregon. All content is the opinion of the individual creators and not of the professor, the university, or the political science department. We'll wrap up this episode with a discussion of star voting a relatively recent innovation in voting methods that's gaining a lot of attention and excitement among political reformers, particularly here in Oregon. We're including this discussion in our episode about direct democracy because star voting could be brought to Oregon via citizen initiative. And in fact, the Star Voting for Oregon campaign is attempting to do just that. As of January 25th, 2023, Oregon's star voting ballot measure petition has been approved and signature gathering is getting underway. You can go to starvoting.org to find out more. Note that the following segment originally appeared on the Pothole Problem Podcast in October 2021.
1: STAR is an acronym for SCORE THEN AUTOMATIC RUNOFF describing how a system works. It was actually invented in Oregon. It was actually like developed by people who met, I think in Lane County. So this is an Oregon bred voting system. And Oregon is
0: historically a politically innovative state. Uh, we introduced to the United States direct democracy and direct democracy is sometimes in the United States referred to as the Oregon system. We were the first state to have referendum, initiative and recall systems.
1: So here's how the system works. It is a single winner voting system. You are given a ballot. And you are supposed to score the candidates on the ballot from zero to five. Zero being you hate the candidate, five is you love the candidate. They are sometimes called stars, like zero to five stars, which is also where it gets the name of star voting. So it's kind of a dual meaning. Double meaning. The
0: acronym stands for score then automatic runoff. Yes, correct. And then also you're giving it stars like regular stars, like you would rate a movie or a restaurant or a Yelp review.
1: Exactly. And so they recommend on the website, putting your favorite candidate at five stars, your least favorite candidate at zero stars, and then starring everyone else accordingly. So you could give the same number of stars to two different candidates, correct? Correct, you can give whatever you want to whoever you want. You can give the same score to multiple candidates. You can even give five stars to multiple candidates. And so what happens is after all the ballots have been voted on, You take the ballot and you add that score to a candidate's running total. So you basically add up the score of a candidate from all their ballots. And what I've so far described is something called cardinal voting or scoring voting, which is another sort of category of voting system where whoever has the highest score is the winner. Where star is different is in the fact that after all the candidates are scored, you take the top two highest scoring candidates and you bring them to an automatic runoff. That's where the star voting gets the second half of its name. You take the two candidates and you take a new look at the same ballots and you see which of the two candidates they scored highest on their ballot. So let's say that we have a hypothetical ballot where there's three candidates, Albert, Bert, and Charlie. Bert and Charlie are in the runoff. Let's say that this particular voter scored Albert as five stars, Bert at three stars, and Charlie at one star. They would cast a single vote to Bert because they scored Bert higher. You keep doing that for every single one of the ballots. If there's a tie between preferences, it gets counted as a no preference ballot. And then at the end, whichever candidate has the most votes after this runoff is crowned the single winner. One of the reasons that the star people say their voting system is great is because more than a lot of systems de-incentivizes strategic voting, which is obviously a pretty big problem that plagues our current first-past-the-post electoral system. Because if you just have the straight scoring voting, it would make the most sense just to give five stars your favorite and zero stars everybody. But because there's this runoff, it encourages you to score more candidates so your vote can be counted in the runoff to get you your better preference. Right, and
0: so if you do score your one favorite candidate five and everyone else zero or one you're likely to not matter in the runoff stage.
1: Exactly, in fact, if you do rate everyone five and everyone else zero, and then your favorite candidate doesn't win, you do not matter at all because you've indicated with your ballot that you don't care, even though maybe in your heart of hearts you did. So that's why it's worth it to score every candidate if there's a level of preference.
0: Right, and so if I have a very favorite candidate, and then a distant second, and then the rest, I just can't imagine even ever seeing their face in a government position, (laughs) then I can give like a five and a two, and I'm likely to do that, uh, because if, if my top, top choice does get there in the runoff, I will want that person to get a lot of points, or actually, they won't. It doesn't. the The runoff stage doesn't have points anymore; it just has votes. Correct. So the runoff stage becomes much like a classic uh, winner take all, or as you say in the very British way, first past the post uh, <laughs> style of election that we are familiar with. Yes. So that is actually one thing that's nice about it. And now the star people, as you say, tout this over preference voting. Why again?
1: So one of the things they say is that with ranked choice voting or preference voting, you can't express the sort of level of support. So for example, if you rank someone one and someone two, you could like those two pretty closely or you could really love the one and like the two is like a distant second. So scoring allows not just to show the ranking of the candidates, but like the strength of support among the candidates, which I think is a pretty great advantage.
0: One of the things that I've often said, I have a problem with preference voting, not me personally, but with use in the American political culture is that it's asking a lot of voters to align four candidates or five candidates in order of preference. And it's an unfamiliar thing. We don't tend to spend a lot of our lives taking a set of things and putting them in a preference order, but we do spend an awful lot of our lives ranking things by stars. I mean, we do it on Amazon, we do it on Yelp, we do it all over the place. Not only are we familiar with it, but it is asking not a ton of a voter to say, okay, here's the five candidates and you know a voter could say you know i only know about three of these five and so the two i don't know about i'm just going to give them zero stars that's easy and in fact you may not even have to tell them people that they will just do that automatically i do see the benefit of the star system over the preference ranking just in terms of voter input of energy. And I am often wary of electoral reforms that ask more of our voters than our current system is already asking, because we already have low turnout rates. We already have low information voters. I don't like the idea of changing to a voting system that is going to ask our citizens to be even more informed and engaged and this one doesn't really do that in my opinion the the way that you've described it i can see voters actually putting in maybe marginally more effort or possibly not even any more effort because you're like yeah i like this person five stars that other person two stars and the rest of them i don't know about that i think could be a common pattern
1: absolutely i think that the ease of this system is pretty apparent I explained to you in maybe a couple minutes, I think that any prospective voting system to have a real chance of being adopted needs to be understood by the voting population or else it's a, not a good voting system to use.
0: Absolutely, and as I say, I think it needs to not ask more of our already beleaguered electorate to spend more time, more energy, more thought on their vote. I would say that on that criteria, star voting does very well. What are the other reasons why you think this is a good system?
1: Well, I think the obvious benefit is greater diversity of candidates. This score voting will encourage more candidates because it eliminates the strategic voting and the vote-splitting problems. They're a big problem with first-past-the-post and a big reason why we have two major parties. And if we adopted the star voting system, it would encourage and make more fair elections with multiple candidates, more than just two.
0: Now, one question I have for you is has the star system been used anywhere in the world so that we can have empirical evidence that in fact does encourage non-major party candidates to run and gives them a chance to win, it encourages greater diversity, it's actually uh, something that results in voters feeling like the winners are legitimate and represent the will of the people, or is this still speculative?
1: I figured you're gonna ask that question, so I looked it up, it's also on the star website. Here are the examples I found. It was used in the 2020 Oregon Independent Party primary, so using like an actual election with real candidates. By a party,
0: which is an interesting choice, as opposed to by an electoral system yes. to choose the winner, But that's, I actually, so that's good.
1: I actually think a primary is the perfect place to use this kind of system because there's naturally many different candidates, and so a system that makes the picking of those candidates more fair, I think, is really great.
0: And that right there actually gets at one of the other criteria that I would have, is not just will the voters be able to handle this reform, but will this reform have a chance to be selected by the people who are already winning under the current system? Because they're the ones who have a say over how our systems go. What's interesting is that from the point of view of party leaders, they want the strongest candidate in the general election possible. They want the one that's most likely to win. I could see party leaders actually saying to themselves, This system for primaries is going to result in a vigorous competition. It's going to result in the nominee of our party being broadly favorable to our party base. It's going to therefore be a good system to use to pick our candidate who's going to then run in the dominant first-past-the-post, winner-take-all, two-party system that we have for selecting the winner of the office. I could see it getting a toehold, not just among you know the independent party or the Green Party or whatever third parties are not gonna win the general election, but the Democratic and the Republican parties, especially now when primary challenges are so problematic for party leaders who worry that the more extreme candidates are going to win in these primaries, and then it's gonna give them an unelectable candidate for the general election. That's always a concern historically for party leaders. I think it's an extremely central concern to them now because it has actually been happening. It's not speculative anymore that extremists from your either far left or far right wing of your party are going to win primaries and then lose general elections. So I could see the political plausibility of this being that party leaders start experimenting with this in certain states, like the Democratic or Republican Party of Oregon could start using this And it wouldn't destroy their political chances. In fact, it might enhance their political chances.
1: In fact, the Democratic Party in Oregon already has started using this in a few special ways. So in 2020, the Democrats use this system to pick their delegates for the Democratic Convention, and the Multnomah County Democrats are using this for all their internal elections. So this is already being used by a major party, albeit not in like an electoral way, but in a significant way, picking delegates and internal elections.
0: Well, that's, and that is actually, I would say, um, it shows that there's curiosity and interest in this voting system. Internal elections like this are great test markets to see whether this voting system in reality works out as well as it does on paper. That's one of the things I think that gets people to resist reforms. Or innovations, is there worried that it's going to actually not have the effects or the impact, the positive uh, outcome that it does in theory? And so there's this test marketing, and I'm I'm glad to hear actually that that a major party is test marketing this. If it's working well in these sort of internal type elections, it doesn't seem too crazy to think that they're going to start using it in primaries. And if it works out in primaries and voters like it, and the nominees go on and do pretty well in the general elections, that's how innovations. Spread in our political culture by essentially starting small and local and working.
1: Absolutely. And I actually think this system would work super well for local elections like city council elections or school board elections or mayor elections because often party allegiance isn't as important as it is at the national level. State politics are a little bit strange. Local politics can be a bit. Wonky and different as well. They don't always follow the national formula. And so I think this system would work super well for those kinds of elections where party identity is less important and sort of the candidates in general are more important, like in very local elections.
0: My only last concern when looking at any kind of particularly electoral reform is the legitimacy question. I mentioned this a little earlier. Will the use of a system that's this unfamiliar to Americans, will it come with the same sense of, okay, the winner is the winner that our current system does. And, you know, you could say, well, first past the post, winner take all. People win frequently with far less than 50%. So how does it have legitimacy? In theory... Our current system probably shouldn't have the level of legitimacy it does relative to other electoral systems, but the fact is is it does because it's what's the most familiar. I am sometimes reluctant to accept an innovation, not because it's not good on paper and not because it actually doesn't work in practice, but because the population has to accept it as legitimate. My only concern with this particular one is, Will Americans be able to look at this and say, yeah, you know, this actually produces a winner that is the winner. The system we have right now is the simplest kind of scorekeeping possible. You count up the votes and whoever has the most is the winner. That is very intuitively pleasing and therefore it brings with it a kind of powerful form of legitimacy. This is a two-phase system where there's stars and then those stars are converted into a preference rank in the second round. And the person who wins has passed through both of these levels. That's potentially confusing enough to the electorate that they could look at the winner and be like, well, you know, I don't know anybody who gave that person any stars whatsoever. How the hell did they win? right? And then you could get out all the information and show them. But at the point at which you're, you're, you're publishing sh- spreadsheets and uh, explaining things and their complexity, that's when you've already probably lost the legitimacy battle.
1: I agree. I think that there is a simple, intuitive argument you can make on behalf of the system that gives it legitimacy. The scoring measures sort of the strength of support. And I think it'll be easy for people to grasp the fact that if a candidate scores highly, that means lots of people scored them highly on their ballots, which means that they deserve to be high scored. I also think the runoff gives it more legitimacy. One of the things people don't like about preference voting, or one of the reasons they think it's not fair, is because when they see the instant runoff method where votes are redistributed they might see it as like votes being counted more than once or like why are these votes moved around but my votes are not moved around since there is no that in star voting it's easy to see like oh my vote's counted once for the scoring here and then every vote's counted once again for this new thing here so i think it's sort of easier to intuit why it's fair
0: I get that the preference voting actually does create a lot of potential confusion because there could be a lot of rounds of elimination, depending on what your preference elimination style is. Like if you have five candidates, some systems eliminate the lowest and rejigger the votes based on that for the top four. And then they eliminate the bottom one that actually can seem a little squirrely for sure. And this one automatically has two levels and it does, you know, I agree that it also does speak intuitively to people, the power of support. I guess if I were now thinking from the perspective of somebody trying to convince voters to accept this, the analogy might have to shift from you're giving your vote to a candidate to you are a judge, much like, say, gymnastics judges or diving judges are judges who are scoring. The reason why I would want to present some kind of appealing analogy is because it is an unfamiliar thing, even though we do it all the time, we give stars on Yelp and on Amazon and all, the, all of these places, I think that it would be helpful for voters to, to say, oh, okay, I'm doing something that is in fact familiar to me. I see people judged all the time. And I know that sometimes when I'm watching the Olympics and that one gymnast gets a really high score and a really low score and doesn't win, it's because that all makes sense. Judges will disagree with each other about what the score is. And for me, I would want to make sure, if I were an advocate of this, that people could have some kind of simple, intuitive analogy to be able to say, oh, that's what I'm doing when I'm a voter. Because right now, the simple, intuitive analogy is probably not the best one, but it's it, it speaks to people, which is, I am giving my vote to somebody. What I expect back from them is, if they win, to advance my interests. Asking people to be judges might actually change our whole political culture, or at least transform how people look at the at elected officials not as well i voted for you and you won and now you're not giving me the stuff that you promised to give me i gave you my vote where's my stuff back right and there is a lot of discontent when that happens to say well you're not you're not exchanging your vote for policy outcomes you are making a judgment of the fitness of these different people to make these policy decisions That could change the perspective that voters have on outcomes. One of the problems, I think, with our current system is that people get dissatisfied very, very easily. They vote for somebody because they think they're going to give them uh, all this stuff. This is particularly true at the presidential level, but I think it happens at all levels. And then that person wins, takes office, and they don't get the stuff that they were promised on the campaign trail. And they're like, but I did my part. I gave you my vote. Why aren't you giving me my stuff? my policy outcomes that I want, and they get discouraged, and they either stay home the next time, which is a common reason why presidents do poorly in the first midterm election after they win, is that a lot of the people that voted for them go, well, I voted for you, and now my life's not a whole lot better, and what did you do for me? So I'm just not even going to vote for you next time. I'm not going to vote for the people in your party. So I, I like the idea that by shifting the perspective of the voter from giver of the vote in exchange, hoped exchange for some outcome that they get if that person wins, to you're a judge judging the fitness of this person to make laws and policies.
1: And I actually don't think it even requires that radical of a shift in thought, because there still is this idea of like, oh, this person has policies I really like, I'll vote for them. This person has policies or ideas I kind of like but kind of disagree with. I'll give them three stars. This person has ideas I hate. I'll give them zero stars. We don't need to abandon this idea of giving a vote means I like your policy. You'll do something for me. I think that's still a way people can think about it combined with, like you said, I like that idea of, being a judge and like scoring them based on how well you think they'll do and how good they th- you think they are.
0: Yeah. And you can imagine people with all kinds of different ways of deciding how to give their stars. Some people might just say, you know, I'm going to give them stars based on how trustworthy they seem. Other people might say, well, I'm going to combine trustworthiness with party label, with policy preferences. I might, you know, the, the Democrat, I, you know, typically I'm going to give the Democrat four stars. And then if somebody who's a liberal non Democrat is running, I might give them five stars because they stand for all the same stuff the Democrat does, but I think that they're actually intelligent or charismatic or going to be a person who stirs things up. So I could, I could combine my, my evaluations of the candidates as policy, party, character, experience, and that, that is actually, while that of course is available to voters right now, by essentially saying you can only pick one person that tends to flatten our evaluation by being like, okay, well, which ultimately is the lesser of the evils? That, that is a common way that we hear that voters give their vote is the lesser of the evils. And this actually, I've always hated having to feel like I'm giving my vote to the lesser of two evils. And this one would mitigate that feeling for a lot of people, I think. Hopefully, it would anyway. Now, I can't guarantee it, but hopefully
1: it would. Exactly. One of the things they say on the Star website is that it promotes voter expressiveness, which I think is exactly what you're trying to get at, which is that it allows voters to be much more expressive about their preferences, which I think will work to boost voter turnout. I think that the problem with the check one option is people like, I can't express how I really feel. With star voting, I think that's a major advantage that provides a lot more range of voting. So there's more expressiveness. And like you said, there's more room for your factors that influence your vote to be represented on your ballot.
0: This has been a really good exploration of this system. I have a feeling that you and I could talk about this for the rest of the night for hours and hours, but we will cut off our discussion here for our listeners.
1: Before we go, what's the summary of what you think about this voting system?
0: Great question. On balance, I am cautiously optimistic, which is about as good as it gets for me for a political reform. And again, I'm cautiously optimistic instead of highly enthusiastic, because I do have some concerns about the legitimacy question. I think that this is a system that people could learn to operate very easily without increasing their energy or thought or action, which is always very concerning to me. You can't ask more voters. I'm always very wary of reforms that would go against the interests of established political elites who could easily block it, not because that means it's a bad reform, but because it's just not going to happen. And I'm not going to put excitement and energy behind something that has no political reality. So I think on those first two counts, good score. The legitimacy question, I'm not going to give it a bad score, but I am concerned that Americans might rebel against something just because it's different. It will be an effort to essentially market this effectively so that people can make the transition from what we're currently used to, which is giving our one vote to one candidate to the idea that they are a judge who's ranking them. And that is a little more complex, though not tremendously more complex. But it mostly also could just create a system where people are like, "But, but who, but why did that person win again? That's my only real concern. I don't actually think it's a huge concern, but it is a concern.